Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Father Wesley Walker, and I just wanted to introduce what it is that we're doing this week. We are playing audio and video of Dr. David Bentley Hart from a book study that he engaged in at St. Benedict's Anglican Catholic Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And the topic for the discussion is his book, That All Shall Be Saved, a book about universal salvation. Uh, Dr. Hart hardly needs any introduction. He is currently a collaborative scholar at Notre Dame and the author of many wonderful and well-known books, including Atheist Delusions, uh, Doors of the Sea, The Experience of God, That All Shall Be Saved, and Tradition and Apocalypse. I do feel at the outset that we should provide a little bit of a caveat, which is namely that we as the sacramentalists don't necessarily endorse everything that Dr. David Billy Hart has written or even says in these episodes. That said, we think he is a brilliant theological mind who definitely deserves our engagement, Um, and so we hope these episodes will be edifying to you. The moderator for the discussion is Father Robert Hart. He is Dr. Hart's older brother. He is also the rector of St. Benedict's Anglican Church there in Chapel Hill. If you're ever in the Raleigh-Durham area or the surrounding area, um, I would really encourage you to check out St. Benedict's and what they have going on there. We wanted to extend a big thank you to Father Hart and to his curate, Deacon Nicholas Harrelson at St. Benedict's, for all the work that they did in putting on these events with Dr. Hart and for their generosity in sharing the audio and video with us. We also, of course, wanted to thank Dr. Hart for his willingness to spend time with all of us answering our questions and making sure that we understand his work even better. If you'd like to support us here at the Sacramentalist Podcast, we would love for you to follow us on social media, either on Facebook or Twitter. Um, We have a lively Facebook discussion group that we'd love for you to join as well. You can subscribe to us on YouTube and or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And finally, we are on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you can sign up to join the Communion of Patreon Saints. We give our members a number of perks, including access to our Discord community, which is a group of like-minded people who are all interested in growing in theological understanding, and so we'd love to have you as a part of that community. So without further ado, here's Dr. David Binley Hart and Father Robert Hart discussing that all shall be saved. Uh, Well, again... Uh, this is Father Robert Hart, Rector of St. Benedict's Anglican Catholic Church, and we're having a book study on my brother's book, That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, the lighting isn't doing it very good favors here, but uh, my brother David Bentley Hart, Ph.D., uh, in conjunction with the Sacramentalist podcast. So uh, let me just get something rolling here. I'm with part three, when you dealt with the meditation answering or back you know going into the question what is a person something i would like to just throw out there in case you want to comment on it at some point is it seems to me that if we're ever capable of being utterly indifferent to people's suffering that that's a condition of being in hell sort of i mean that's well, uh, it's not a, it's not, there's nothing beatific about that. There's no mercy there. 
Well, the, the, the um, <laughs> you, you, you know, I uh, often go for the cheap rhetorical line. Um, one of the lines in the book, of course, obviously, at the end of that, that section uh, is, in the, at the last, we discover that the ethos of heaven is the same as the right. ethos of hell, everyone for himself, every soul for itself. Mm-hmm. This has always been something of a problem, <laughs> I think, in that, uh, you know, it's, it, we, uh, we shudder in horror now when we read Thomas Aquinas or Peter Lombard or any number of other figures in the tradition suggest that heavenly beatitude is actually amplified by the vision of the sufferings of the damned. Gregory the Great, I, th- I think it was, has said, well, of course, and there can't possibly uh, attend to that knowledge any sort of regret and that would include the regret of compassion for their suffering, uh, because that would darken the joys of heaven, and that's not possible. So it is a rather interesting proposition that the price of, of heavenly beatitude is that one be rendered a moral monster. Uh, but, you know, you don't actually have to have... Um, the extreme statements like like Thomas's or Peter Lombard's, I mean, I think anyone who's read Thomas Aquinas would quickly grasp that there's a certain deficit of moral sensibility in the man anyway. Um, I say that not to be rude, I just think that it, it comes out again and again in all sorts of odd contexts in his work, that he was not what you'd call naturally tender-hearted or naturally acutely morally intelligent wasn't one of his strengths. But then again, there are lots of brilliant philosophical minds to suffer from the same deficit. So, But you don't really need statements that extreme. I mean, just the notion that um, we could enter into perfect beatitude in the absence of some we loved or knew, or worse, in the knowledge that they are suffering eternal dereliction without that knowledge constituting a regret. That, I mean, that, 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 that in itself is sufficient to say that, that, that it's a beatitude sustained by a certain sort of ignorance or moral stupidity. But, but not a beatitude that's a, it could never, you know, in itself be adequate to what it is that makes us persons. And that's always been a problem. I, I brought this up in, you know, the first time we met here, that there's a certain uh, sort of impossibility written into the very commandment to love God and neighbor as a result of the belief. The impossibility, first, of loving God with your whole heart when you know that he's this sort of God, but also the, 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 the quite logically crushing impossibility of loving your neighbor as yourself if in your heart proleptically you've already accepted the possibility that he 
could suffer eternal suffering while you enjoyed eternal bliss uh, in his without that in any way constituting for you a, a, comp, a, a qualifying and in, in some sense uh, corrupting uh, consciousness. Well, for it to be a, any state to be beatific, it has to be in, in perfect accord with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Well, they yeah, shall perfect accord. Mercy. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, a, a, a perfect accord with, with Christian understanding of Beatitudes, you would think would be the dwelling of the rational nature in its last end, which is perfect love and compassion, uh, incapable of of spite, incapable of cruelty, but also incapable of indifference. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I think that paradox has always been so obvious that we never talk about it because it's so obvious it can't be addressed. It has, it has to be, you have to teach yourself not to see it. Um, a few months ago, I, I recorded a conversation I had a fr with a friend of mine, the novelist China Mieville, who is much better known than I am. <laughs> but um, uh, he's, a, a, uh, he's a Marxist, he's an atheist, and yet at the same time, he finds himself uh, drawn to and fascinated by theology and religious thought. Anyway, I mention him because his best novel is one called The City and the City, in which two cities occupy the same space, but it's not the typical science fiction story of alternate realities. It's, it's that they literally are just two cities. They, they have the same territory, and if you're a citizen of one, legally you're required not to see the other city there. <laughs> You have to learn to unsee it. And this requires an absolute discipline of the mind and will, obviously, because it's there at all times. It's perfectly ubiquitous. Concretely, it's there. It's a, it's a brilliant conceit for a novel, and it's wonderfully worked out. But in a sense, a lot of the doctrines that lie right at the surface of Christianity oblige us to do this all the time. I mean, the, the, things like this. Um, you have a perfectly coherent picture of God in Christ, a self-outpouring love. You see it enacted in the ministry of Christ as concern for the poor, the least of these. The claim that God never rests content with the 99 sheep in the fold, if even one has been lost, he, the good shepherd, goes in search of that sheep till it's found, which, of course, was a passage that Origen and Gregory of Nyssa both Book to heart as as clearly a universalist statement. Um, but then, on top of it, you you have this this uh, jarringly inconsonant story about about hell and eternal suffering that's so conspicuous a contradiction of the, of the logic and the of the revealed character of God that you have learned all your life to unsee it. Psychological um, process. Oh, psychological, but it's a, it, it, it proceeds according to the rules that a lot of psychological processes do. That the first, the first tutelage 
in this process comes by way of terror. Um, the first thing you're told is not to see it because if you see it, then you're liable, then, you're, then you yourself are, are liable to its judgment. You see, if you see the, the discordancy, if you recognize it, then you yourself uh, have merited the very evil you've seen, you know. Um, it's, 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 it's not that hard. One of the things I say in order to infuriate people, which is very much, to my mind, the best way to, to, to start a, an argument on a controversial topic, and I'll tell you why in a moment, like this, I mean, on this topic, is I'll, tell, is I'll just say that, well, the arguments in the book are irrefutable. Now, I happen to believe this is true, but of course, the argument is about coherency. It's not, it is irrefutably, I have proved that all shall be saved. What I've proved in the book, it seems to me, is that anybody universalist reading of Christianity is internally incoherent and has always consisted in just this kind of psychotic suppression of an obvious truth that, that, that we have been taught to suppress because it is so resplendently uh, discordant that to acknowledge it even a little bit is is to fall prey to doubt in, in the coherency of the whole system. But as I also mentioned, uh, w w when I say irrefutable, I mean just self-evident too. I mentioned the child the uh, in my uh, preface to this to the uh, paperback edition. I, I should point out to everyone that the soft cover edition has a preface that's not in the original hard hardback. And that preface is very important, sadly. I, I wish I'd thought to write it, write its central uh, arguments when I was writing the book. But anyway, I ended up writing the preface as a result of, being, of supplying an afterword to the Russian and Greek edition of the book. And I mentioned a child who, uh, with Asperger's, or on the autism spectrum, however this is defined now, and lacking the capacity to be indoctrinated with contradictory information, could see immediately the sheer horror of what he had been told regarding hell, or what he had understood at last from a sermon by a visiting Dominican preacher in his parish, and how it basically ultimately ended up alienating his whole family from the faith because they couldn't, you know, it was a choice between their son's well-being and continuing to affirm something that, that they had learned from their son's reaction was too horrifying to contemplate. They had, it, had, it had finally had broken through, and, and his reaction had broken through their indoctrination. And the father told me it was like it was like a psychological awakening. It was like suddenly realizing that you remembered some traumatic event from your childhood that you had entirely suppressed, that you'd seen a horrible car accident or or uh, someone had hurt you or something. Um, and that's how it struck him is that he suddenly was aware of always having known that this this was not only discordant but morally hideous 
at a level that, that, that he found almost indescribable. You know, that's and so he was very pleased when I pointed out to him, you know, it's not actually scriptural <laughs> to go back to this. It's not scriptural. And I told him about Grey Grievedness and others. So, you know, that he was glad to learn that there was this other tradition. But but that, that I mean, to me, that was very instructive is that um, what would normally be treated as a kind of disability in their son also actually was a kind of clarity of vision yeah, I understand that that. to their recovery from a kind of psychological indurated psychologically indurated indoctrination that had always been painful to them without them being aware of it you know this is interesting because i know that it is to train my own mind not to see the obvious truth because in my teen years i did that but as you, you may as you will know perfectly well even though we had all been raised in the episcopal church and confirmed that it was when i was almost 15 yeah. that i had my made my big life-changing conversion but it was followed by a, a massive battle with depression over the very subject of eternal hell and I'd actually forced myself to forget that when I was training myself to believe in it and somehow believe that I could still be uh, joyful and blissful in, the, in heaven or in the kingdom of God or in the immortal state. Uh, I really didn't get free of that until the 1990s when a priest named Philip Roulette really helped me to, con in my mind, convert to... Uh, universalism and, and so embracing I, I don't think you've ever mentioned that to me before so i i wasn't aware you know um, it's i should have mentioned it before but you know it's one of these things that even though i'm about to turn 65 i'm suddenly remembering it again over the last few years. you don't look a day over 67. thank you <laughs> well it's slightly different for me because I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I had the opposite experience in that I could never force myself to believe it after. Uh, I'll say this when I was a child and heard that I believed it because children believe what they're, they're told. And I found it terrifying and horrible. But then even at the age of, I think, by 11 or 12, I had just decided I couldn't make, I just couldn't make myself believe it, you know, and so I didn't. But, but it didn't become a conscious protest against it, um, probably until I was an undergraduate and I was immersing myself in the Greek patristic heritage and um, discovering, uh, um, well, I mean, discovering what we have of the writings of origin happily we have more of them now in that recently a, a treasure trove of his commentaries on the psalms in the original greek was recovered um and those are wonderful and uh, but on the whole uh uh we've been robbed of the writings of origin uh to, to a horrible extent but then there was gregory of nyssa who being the pillar of orthodoxy, the pater patrum, his works have been preserved. And, and at that time, the, course, the truth of the matter was that in the uh, East, in the sort of 
the larger intellectual circles of the Eastern Orthodox Church that I knew, uh, universalism was pretty much the dominant leaning. Uh, now it seems impossible to think that because the American Orthodox world has been invaded by these former evangelicals uh, who just by intellectual training and spiritual formation don't understand how it is that a, a tradition of 2,000 years might possess a huge variety of different understandings of the core uh, core doctrines and who have brought the the narrowness and to be honest the the barbarism of the white evangelical tradition into American orthodoxy in a way that I think has poisoned it beyond rescue um, uh, it's sad but you know uh, I, I don't have any respect for that tradition I mean in it's at its worst I've known lots of wonderful evangelicals who are just decent Christians but I mean that 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 fundamentalist strain and unfortunately it's people of that fundamentalist strain who uh, who've migrated into orthodoxy because they discovered there was such a thing as ancient Christianity and they want and they were drawn to orthodoxy because they could you know unite themselves to ancient Christianity and still hate Roman Catholics um, for many of them I'm sorry I mean that was that's just I mean I've had some almost openly not meaning to say but at the end of the day and the funny thing was at that time I was drawn to the Eastern Church in part just because if you're an Anglican you raised high Anglican you know you get a lot of heavy doses of the church fathers anyway um, oh yeah because, absolutely that's yeah. why I'm still in it <laughs> Anglican tradition going back to the days of the of the uh, break with Rome had to establish its its Catholic pedigrees as far as they were concerned on a patristic basis rather than on on the later developments and as a result of course right up uh to the late 19th century the most distinguished patristic scholarship came out of england there were no figures even in germany among the lutherans or anywhere in the catholic world like lightfoot for instance right when uh, Newman converted to Catholicism, he was just—he was just shocked by the by the, the the total ignorance that he encountered again and again of patristic uh, antiquity. And it was good. I mean, it started the race. You know, that was the beginning, is the slow beginning of what would later later generations become the race or small movement among Catholics, but also that it influenced a lot of uh, Russian Orthodox in in France at the same time. But anyway, the thing is, the people that I talked to, you know, like I talked to Father Thomas Hopko, and, you know, I, I'm not going to, but, but let's just say his leanings were clearly universalist. So were those uh, to a great degree of that whole generation of Russian intellectuals. And they were, draw, and, you know, it was a 19th and 20th century Russian Orthodox tradition that leaned that way. And it's still much, when you get outside, uh, I mean, I'll be participating in a Volus Academy uh, Zoom conference in Greece sometime, I think it's next month, on this issue. And the reception of my book in, 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 the, in the Greek Orthodox world has been, you know, not at all hostile. Uh, I think I mentioned Andrew Louth's reading, of, you know, review of the book in which 
aside from making the sort of meaningless claim that one shouldn't use certain philosophical techniques when making certain arguments, more or less affirmed his own leanings as well. And this is what it was like at the time. So when I when I became Orthodox some forty years ago, uh, I was you know I found myself among people for whom the, the universalist vision of things seemed perfectly natural, normal, healthy, and and probably was the dominant leaning among those who really thought about the matter. Certainly, it was so in the parish church in Baltimore I went to. All the really more literate people. It was OCA, so it was half convert, half native, but. The issue simply wasn't that contentious. That was pretty much how almost everyone I spoke to tended to see matters. But uh, the reason I ended up writing the book, and and I'll get to meditation three in a moment, but there's something funny about this, is I got more and more found myself not in contact with, say, hard and fast Calvinists, right? Because a lot of Calvinists, a lot in the Reformed tradition, went the way of Karl Barth, and they uh, they sort of inverted Calvinism. They used Ephesians as a way of saying, "Well, you know, in Christ, maybe all were predestined to be saved." And you know, you know, if you have a sense, of, if you have a notion of the absolute sovereignty of God, uh, you can end up like, say, Alvin Plantinga, who's a weird kind of universalist, you know. Believes everyone will ultimately get out of hell, but God will never cease creating souls, so there'll always be a hell because someone's there being purified. <laughs> Straight, but no, it was actually it was um, it was encounters with the new sort of more militant um, uh, traditionalist Catholic factions that in recent years have been growing in this country, sort of the the, the old manualist Thomism. That we thought had died out uh, in the days of de Lubac and and Balthazar and the young Ratzinger and all that was in revival, and that kept pushing me. And then when I was at St. Louis University, I had this lunch with. I was introduced to Michael McClymond and James oh, Dominic boy. Rooney, the two guys who spend a great deal of time attacking me, uh, and the two perhaps who do it most incompetently, but. The two keep attacking the book. And for the book. <laughs> because the conversation I had at lunch, I thought was so catastrophically stupid. I mean, I just thought that they were saying things so morally offensive and silly that I thought that they were brainwashed and that others, are, and that this was a very bad thing. And that if and I was very sick at the time, if I ever got well, I should write down a book on universal salvation. And so it was the first theological book I wrote after I got over the worst part of my illness, which was about a year and a half later. Well, I've already decided it brings up uh, Michael McClyman's book and uh, tries to endorse it, that I will hit this button. Oh, so, I wouldn't worry. I mean, that's, that's just an embarrassing book. I mean, Michael's a nice, <laughs> the funny thing is Michael's a nice guy. Uh, he's an American He's a historian of American Christianity. He only re- he doesn't read the languages. He doesn't know the ancient world. He um, he just believes in his heart of hearts that universalism is evil for some reason. He's like a charismatic and a Calvinist, and uh, and uh, and a, and an Episcopalian. 
So I can't really explain the sources of his conviction, but the thing the thing is that book it's is really not historical accuracy. It's, oh no, 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 no. It's he a total doesn't fiction story he, that he tells. Well, it, what does he tell? I mean, that's the thing. Is it turns out he, this thing about universalism coming from the Gnostics? He's not <laughs> able to induce a single example. The one he he thinks works. Carpocratians, there are two, there are three problems. One is the Carpocratians were a very eccentric group as well. They don't fit into any category. Everyone hated them. So the suggestion that they influenced origin is absolutely absurd. The account we get in Irenaeus, though, doesn't say what he thinks it says. It, it doesn't really say they were universals. Oh, it's, it's, he's just misread a single sentence in which, uh, and he's, and then there's the problem that most scholars think that Irenaeus was, was mistaken anyway and was confusing two different things. But that's all beside the point is, is, the, is the, set, the, the, the big claim of the book is that Christian universalism came from Gnostic sects, none of which, to our knowledge, were universalists. It, even, to the, even if you think the term Gnostic is still a useful term, I don't. I no longer use it as a critical category. But even if you, they, none of them were universalists, and they certainly wouldn't have influenced Origen. Who, Definitely not Origen. Um, but but he has no evidence. So I mean, it's this huge book, and he produces no evidence, and then the rest is just suppositions. Well, this universalist became a Unitarian, therefore universalism is Unitarian. I mean, that's about the level of syllogistic reasoning that book. And then there's so many. So many errors. When he talks about Bulgakov, for one, at one at one point, he quotes a long passage. Um, I think it's from the Comforter to show how, where Bulgakov was. How Bulgakov was a heretic. The problem is the passage he's quoting is not Bulgakov. It's Bulgakov quoting someone he's then going on to refute. And I mean, this is just that's the quality of the scholarship. The book is what nine billion pages long. Something like that. Yeah, and there's just not a single intelligent argument in it. And it's just, I don't know why Michael, he's just trying to wring water from stone. He just doesn't have the evidence. And so he just keeps writing and writing. I mean, the book was supposed to be like two or 300 pages. But because he couldn't, he didn't have any evidence for the case he was making. He just kept adding claims and sticking in more. Uh, but the thing is, the conversation I had with him about his plans for that book, and then Rooney being there making these—I mean, I mean—some of the worst arguments I have ever heard, yeah. just convinced me that I would be remiss not to write a uh, at least a short book on this topic, explaining what I thought were were simple logical errors they could be disabused of. I, I but I I've never really expected people. It turns out there are people really committed to the idea. But then later in the year at SOU I met some young converts to Catholicism from fundamentalist evangelicalism. They were sort of the Catholic counterpart parts of the the Orthodox I was just talking about. And I found out that for some of them it was necessary to believe in hell because it justified their escape from from evangelicalism into Catholicism. It was as if they had been raised in the working class neighborhood and worked their way up into the neighborhood with the gated with the, the gated community, and they didn't want their, the sort of special distinction of having gotten into the into that community to be spoiled by discovering that the gates weren't real. 
You know, I, I think I said, I mean, I've used the, the, the imagery before, but for them, it was like saying, well, you know, I worked hard to get my children into this public academy, this private school. And then it turns out that they have a huge sponsorship program, you know, subventions for the poor that lets just anybody in. And what, you know, so what was the point of buying it? And then there was, then there was a very small number, but the, this was, they were the really disturbing ones. Some of the, and they were all within this manualist revival, this revival of, of Baroque Thomism. They really just liked the idea. I mean, they really got a kick out of it. It was the best part of the story for them that they were going to be part of that rare, rare and that and that all the degenerate things in the culture around them that they didn't like were going to be punished. And everyone who didn't get it right, who didn't agree with them, was going to have eternity to rue the day they ever disagreed with these manualists. And I realized that's somehow <laughs> in the history of Christianity, that tiny sociopathic faction got somehow got the, the rhetorical high ground on this because in a secret sense, that small faction, that small, you know, sort of morally impoverished group is also the one, are also the ones who've safeguarded the orthodoxy of hell from time immemorial. Uh, so you've got, you know, the whole Christian world sort of held hostage by the worst of us. Um, it, was a, it was a sobering education, I'll say that. I do want us to get into the third meditation, especially. Well, I can tell you. I can. T I can just say some things on it. I mean, I can tell you how it follows from what we were saying uh, last week. Shall I? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you could make arguments about whether or not, say, Paul, because I, the last I talked about Paul last week was explicitly a universalist, even though it seems to be whenever you can state with considerable certainty, if nothing else, and with a quite, quite a good deal of scriptural evidence is that wherever the narrative of salvation is most developed, especially in Paul's theology, it always expands into an affirmation of the universal and even cosmic, cosmic scope of the saving work of Christ. Uh, I mean, it is his theology, his understanding of the logic of salvation in Christ becomes completely internally coherent at certain crucial junctures, like in, you know, Romans 11, you know, he's bound all in disobedience that all may be shown mercy, or those famous verses, Romans 5.18 or 1 Corinthians 22, but principally more than anything, or 1 Corinthians 3.12 to 15, you know, but 1 Corinthians 15 and such is the great is sort of axis of soteriology in Scripture for Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and apparently for Macrina and others. Um, part of this is because I, I think as Gregory of Nyssa so clearly saw and as, as you know, those verses like Romans 5.18 or, or that final part of, Rome, of 1 Corinthians 15 shows is that the very concept of what a saved person might be makes no sense if it's limited. 
I mean, I mean, that's the substance of what I consider the fifth theme in the book. I have in my mind a list of the dialectical themes that compose the, the overarching ar argument of the book. And that's the reason why I put the scriptural material in meditation two, so it would lead into meditation three. What is the nature of finite personhood and what would it really mean morally in this world or a world to come for any soul to reconcile itself to the bliss of union with God in the absence and on the condition of the perpetual torment of any other soul? Uh, and the principal claim there, there is that whether we consider the most intimate relations we have with others or consider instead the most remote and perhaps abstract of our human connections, we'll still find that ultimately it becomes meaningless to assert the salvation of any person apart from all others, proving that Abraham Lincoln was right. When Abraham Lincoln asked him who was going to, what was asked by someone just about who, who's going to heaven, he said, it's either everyone or it could be no one. Now, whether some, something else might be saved in the absence of others, some sort of anonymous spark of spiritual identity uh, is another matter altogether and one that falls largely outside Christian tradition, as it does almost all traditions. But some things are ob obvious. It's difficult to imagine what becomes of the actual person who was, say, a mother, if she enjoys eternal beatitude despite the eternal dereliction of a child whom she loved and who loved her and whose presence in her life constitutes an essential part of who she is as a person. I mean, all of you who are parents know how totally you're overwhelmed uh, by the love you feel for a newborn child. You suddenly, it, it, uh, it, it just, in, in the first time especially, just incalculably enlarges your sense of what the human heart is capable of and what it means to be bound to another person. Parents invariably love their children with an intensity that the children can't quite reciprocate, obviously, <laughs> but they'll pass on to their children. And, you know, and yet if you think about it, if you, you, if you look at, you remember looking at that child when he or she was new, the absolute center of your existence in a sense, and then contemplated if, if somehow you knew that he or she would end up spending eternity in torment, you would prefer that he or she never existed. You wouldn't selfishly, for the emotional comfort the child gave you during the, the years of, of his or her life, be able to wish anything else. How evil an idea must it be to make someone wish or, th or even contemplate the contingency in which they would wish, he or she would wish, that his or her child had never existed. Well, in a, in a sense, it's no less difficult to understand how, say, a man who never knew that child and perhaps never even really knew that mother remains the person he was if he must become indifferent not only to the child's fate but to her grief as well in order to enter the bliss of the kingdom the connections don't disappear just because they become more emotionally tenuous who you are is still determined here the issue here is not merely one of the extrinsic association that exists between persons but of the very 
ontology of personhood. Mm. Our relations to others, in fact, constitute us as the persons we are. We're not self-subsistent essences. And there's no such thing as a person in perfect isolation. So if any person is in hell, so too is some part of every person whose identity was shaped by his or her relation to that damned soul. And then so too, everyone who knows that other person, and so on and so on, without limit. These attachments necessarily belong to a continuum of relations and interrelations that simple logic tells us extends to all persons everywhere throughout time. In order to affirm the true beatitude of the saved, one must introduce partitions into that continuum, invariably arbitrary, in order to define areas of morally and emotionally acceptable indifference. But as soon as one does that, one discovers that the region of indifference is actually limitless, since it must potentially accommodate not only any person who might fail to be saved, however proximate or remote, but also anyone related by bonds of love or fidelity to that person, and so on, ad infinitum. And this means that one has, morally speaking, proleptically detached one's happiness from the well-being of every other existing soul. Since, as demonstrated earlier in the text, what one is willing to sacrifice to achieve one's end even if only as a possibility, is something one has already absolutely surrendered. So, in those terms, at the last, the realms of the realm of one's concern, in principle, must contract until nothing but the isolated self remains. And as I said earlier this evening, the ethos of heaven proves to be the same as the ethos of hell, every soul for itself. And this remains true, More true, in fact, if one argues that God might spare the redeemed the knowledge of the lost by expunging them from memory, as one especially absurd argument goes. See, that was not possible for Aquinas and others who dogmatically believed that the beatific vision being a knowledge, the the uh, uh, being like a vespertine, like a scantia matutina of the divine essence, meant knowing all things that could be known, because you would know them in the divine essence. But you have people like William Lane Craig who says, well, you know, God just might cut the memory of that person out. <laughs> of course, <laughs> what would then be saved could not really in any meaningful sense be a person any longer. It would be only the remnant of someone. In fact, it would be some other creature altogether, in which case one's salvation would really be your in- one's annihilation as a particular person within the community of created persons. Um, and of course, this every soul for itself is not just, you know, uh, the sort of uh, craven counsel of one who's trying to get to a lifeboat, uh, whether anyone else gets to it or not, and indifferent to them. It's also, once you're in the lifeboat, you have to accept as the, ter- as, as, as the condition to your salvation that you stay there and someone else be kept out. Because the, re- the reason I say that is because I quoted uh, William James a couple of weeks ago. If we knew that somewhere remotely far beyond the, 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 you know, anything we could see or hear, but we knew that to sustain the, the order of our happiness, one wretched soul suffered torment, would we not in our heart of hearts think this? A, a monstrous calculus, a monstrous commerce. 
And I also mentioned the Ursula K. Le Guin story, the, the ones who walk away from Omelas, um, uh, which everyone should read because it's just, it, it, it puts it very nicely. That damned soul, if, if it's only one, has the sort of potentially sacrificed price for the beatitude of the kingdom that God made with his own omnipotence for some reason in time before time that we must now make in our hearts is our Redeemer. Could have been us. It's him. And so in a sense, he's the one suffering in our stead since none of us supposedly merits salvation and all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us could have gone down that wrong path. All of us were one of the tokens ventured on the table. And then that actually According to the rules the, of the game. Yeah. That exists in the concept also that people believe there's a specific number of the redeemed. So that if you're in the lifeboat, you have to keep the other people out. And thus they are your eternal savior. It, well, even if you don't believe there's a specific number, you just believe it's a possibility. In your heart of hearts, you've made the same bargain. And so has God. That's sort of the inverse of what our father said about going into combat. He said uh, he decided he was already going to die so that he just simply would make sure he didn't let down his uh, fellow soldiers. It's you know, the exact inverse of that attitude. Yeah. For those who don't know, our father was in the uh, Second World War. We're, we're that old, and uh, in some of the uh, some of the worst fighting in the European theater. Um, so he did see a lot of his uh, his uh, friends and comrades killed. Uh, I have a. That's the opposite. Sorry. Yeah. If I may, um, this chapter on what is a person really spoke to my soul in a sense that there was a few people in my life that like hurt me really bad so much so that I just wanted to cut them out of my lives and never forgive them. But your chapter on how bound we are to one another, how our eternal futures are bound to each other. Like I, I actually, it, it gave me the strength to forgive them. And I wanted to testify that huh? I mean, this book is philosophical. Sure. But it also changed my life, and it gave me the strength to forgive because I know that one day we'll we'll share the same heavenly dwelling together, and it has to be done through some kind of reconciliation. So if Jesus did it for me, I might as well do it for the ones who hurt me first. Just want to say thanks for that. Well, that's very kind of you, um, but I suspect it comes more from you than from me. <laughs> I think the book probably is just an occasion, but thank you for saying that. Actually, it's good to hear things like that because I spend so much time in pitched battle with hordes of lunatic cannibal Thomists. Okay, right. They're not really cannibals. I just, I just want that to get out there in the internet so people can, can. Oh, now he's accusing us of cannibalism. I knew, I knew he was insane. First, he thinks his dog talks. Now he's accusing us of cannibalism. <laughs> well, my, my dog does talk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's all I would say on that uh, that point. I mean, any questions, any comments, any remarks, any? Well, actually, could you 
just also point out what just just drive home just a little bit about how the salvation of all is ultimately the body of Christ. And, uh, oh well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I, I mean, part of this I mentioned Gregory of Nyssa earlier. Of course, that's part of that meditation as well. It's interesting. Uh, Gregory, for me, what's interesting about Gregory? I mean, there, there are certain figures in patristic tradition who are what we would now consider systematic theologians or systematic philosophers. The term wasn't used, but you didn't think in terms of the system. So with Gregory, you know, different aspects of, of his thinking appear in his spiritual treatises, in his polemical treatises, in catechetical treatises, uh, or his exegetical, and you have to put them all together. But one of the things that I found extraordinarily impressive, and it's something he shares, obviously, with um, uh, others, I mean, at least he is, he is a sister speaking uh, in the same terms, but it shows up in De Hominis Opificio, on the making of, of man, um, that, that uh, this beautiful um, uh, sort of allegorization of the two creation accounts of Genesis, of course, you know, and he created in, in 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 his own image created he them man and woman male and female created he them rather uh-huh. uh, and then of of course then there's the, the Eden narrative later the Yahweh narrative well of course in, in good good late antique fashion this opens up the door to a, an allegorical reading which the first creation is in a sense the creation of the end. The end for the perfect creation, the creation of the seven days for for Gregory, the whole seven days of the cosmic eon, of um, and and they culminate in the final uh, rejoicing of all creatures in 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 union with one another and with God, and so in the divine councils, in a sense, or subspeciae eternitatis, that's the whole of history there in the first of, the first creation account of Genesis. And that human beings exist only in the, in in communion with one another. They, they have their identity as humans only within the the one body of humankind, which is is uh, the um, body of the logos too. The one you know, the destined to become the body of the incarnate uh, Christ, which he would be the head. And uh, w- with Gregory, of course. The logic of this is clear, that, that uh, it, it really is impossible. The reason the, the good shepherd goes out looking for the one sheep, it's not, uh, not merely that he's hoarding sheep. <laughs> uh, it's you know, the twofold. His, his love is um, relentless, but also that we, uh, the humanity, is not human except in its totality, it is not yet the image of God. For the creation in the image of God, which is mentioned in the first creation account, means the totality of humanity in which God is all in all. In all. Um, uh, uh, the Otherwise, you know, for him, the image is only, uh, 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 for, for any individual, is something incomplete and notional, and on its way, and, you know, is always eternally in motion towards the thought of Goodness, but the true image and likeness of God is the perfect peace, love, and harmony 
of the one body of the Logos in its totality is conceived before the ages as, as the reflection of the Logos in creatures. Um, yeah, in general, uh, uh, this, this conviction runs through great to the point where sometimes he's thinking in those terms even when it's not clear necessarily to his readers, like his uh, famous epistle ad oblabium, uh, to Ablabius, uh, defending the Trinitarian formula, he says, well, you know, in a sense, there's only one real human being, and uh, we're all just hypostases of that, you know. Many who don't understand the context of his thinking think he's talking about an abstract essence of which were expressions, and that makes no sense, as if, you know, he just means that that that's, because that would make the Trinity as as an analogy to the Trinity that would make the Trinity seem like three gods who uh, who who are three different instantiations of some universal abstract called godness or godhood or divinity. Uh, in fact, he's thinking in just the opposite way that, that in a sense we are almost as um, not in the same way, obviously, but we are as much uh, indissolubly related to that one body of humanity as, in a sense, it's true to say that each of the persons, uh, full, the divine persons, fully expresses the divine essence. That that um, there's a kind of analogy there. Not not not, and I don't mean just a social or a communal. That's not it. It's not you know something about the Trinity that can be mirrored in social relations. That's true, but they, he's saying something more radical than that, that we don't possess our essence in ourselves, that, that hypostatically, just as the Father passes, the, you know, expresses the fullness, the depth of, of the paternal source in the Son, and the Son returns that love through the Spirit, and so on and so forth. In a sense, we, of course, our humanity moves in and through all of us, binding us together from one to another so that we are, in a sense, fully created only in being created in one another. That's a very important part of your meditation. I didn't want to have it on yeah. Well, you should never leave Gregory out. Never. Never. Can I pipe in one more time here? Um, okay. I um, I just completed uh, my PhD uh, last year, and I, I greatly, well, you were one of my dialogue partners, uh, Dr. Hart, and um, I was trying to find a philosophical ground for human dignity, and the way I tried to do it was through aesthetics and through Gregory of Nyssa, and I could be completely wrong, but my my committee, they passed me, so praise the Lord. But what you're saying here is exactly what I've been trying to work at the past three or four years. And I'm, it's just beautiful. Like, I, I, I suspected that we're not humans yet, but that God is making us into humans like himself. And Well, I, mean, I think Bulgakov yeah. is very good on picking up this theme in patristic thought is that we are not yet fully created. The full, the, for us, creation is yet in the future. You know, 
we're yeah. still we're still in via from non-being into the fullness of God. But yeah. within God, the fullness of creation exists in its perfection. That's the first creation for Gregory. And yeah. and so I think that's an insight that we all need to hear. Well, people don't understand. For instance, um, Bulgakov has this very interesting argument that's often misread, in which he says, we from the first consented to our own creation. But it's because he's thinking in this sort of inversion of, of logic from, this, from, this, from the vantage of eternity. The eschatological is actually the beginning. And so for him, that, uh, that final... All, you know, every, all, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall praise, which is what the word means, uh, is for him the initial confession. Uh, that is, that is, that's the first word of the fully created. So, so that at that moment, which is our true beginning, we consented to our creation. And so even being created is a free act for rational beings. And in a sense, Bulgakov is, is extending uh, language from both Gregory and Maximus uh, at that point, but doing it with that sort of inimitable Bulgakovian genius. I do, I, I mean, I do actually believe that Sergei Bulgakov is just the towering uh, genius of, of 20th century theology. I, I, don't, I mean, I, there are many brilliant theologians of the century, but I, I just don't, for sheer uh, richness and range and subtlety and and just pure brilliance i don't think anyone else quite comes close to him yeah well my my hope and goal was to ensure that every human being is is granted and bestowed dignity and the way i, I could do that was through your arguments through the, the beauty of the infinite and through uh, that all should be saved simply saying that we're not human until we're all together. And so there's no one that can be excluded from the, from the circle of community. So, thank it's you certainly, again. I mean, I mean it's, well, thank you, yeah. Where, where did you get your doctorate, by the way? Ironically, it's from Regent University in Virginia. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. There is a question. Yeah, I did. I did have a quick question. Um, what you said about the love of a parent, uh, I found very compelling and, and true. This is true. I wonder why I who's sitting, say, sitting yeah. right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I, I, I guess I'm curious about one biblical text we didn't talk about last week, um, which is uh, which is what I think Matthew says about Judas, that it would have been better for him not to be born. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious how, how, how you might handle that. I mean, that's just, I mean, that was, I'm sorry, that's just a common idiom of the time. And it's speaking about, you know, uh, it's just that you can read so much into that, that, that we've said that every word uh, spoken is some sort of absolute dogmatic pronouncement, you know, rather, you know, it would have been better for that one if he hadn't done this, better from if he hadn't been born. Is, is just a common enough idiom in just about every language and culture on earth. I don't think you're supposed to take it in an eschatological context, but you can certainly take it in the context of the judgment of history and, and, and the imminent frame and what happens in this world and, you know, that the, you know, the, the fire that can, that can destroy a body and soul in the Gehenna and all that. 
Uh, but but uh, I, just taking like little proof texts like that, as people have the tendency to do, and they really isolate it from the whole texture of scripture and treat it as a proposition rather than, than, than an expression or rather than an idiom. Somehow you've proved something, you know. Uh, so, uh, like, everybody who sneezes and, and so on, you know, the person says, God bless you, that means that person is declaring that he or she is a believer and is invoking the blessing of God, whereas, you know, it's an expression. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, I also just wanted to say, I, mean, I really appreciate I, I it. It is funny, is, 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 is um, this tendency to, I always wish that they had never uh, numbered the verses because that only encourages the habit of extract as though they were, you know, as if it were a, a collection of, of propositions, uh, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's this, 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 this notion, just, okay, that I'm going to insist that 1 Corinthians 15.22 be taken absolutely literally. You know, it's over. It is. Everyone's going to be saved. It says so. No question. I did want to just say too. I really appreciated. Uh, I really appreciated your work on Genesis in this chapter, um, and and treating the theme of election there. I did my thesis on for my MDiv on um, Hagar and Ishmael, and I think you see the same pattern very clearly there. Of despite the fact that they're a, a sort of rejected line, they're nevertheless in a sense saved. Well, isn't that funny? I mean, the thing is, is people, it, it amazes me. I mean, that is the running theme after chapter 6, obviously, in Genesis, but in a sense before that, because it's already there with Cain and Abel. This is a, a, a running theme throughout all of Genesis, which God's election does not fall upon the, 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 the one who enjoys the privilege, but goes to the second son or is deferred, but that it redounds, you know, ultimately say to Joseph's saving his brothers or, you know, whatever, you know, wherever there's, because that in a sense is also, you know, uh, uh, Jacob loves the children of his beloved wife, Rachel, more than he loves the children of Leah, even though they're older, you know, so most of them are. So it's, uh, it's, uh, but the funny thing is, is how often, that metaphor, that or not, that analogy in Paul was just read over. You would think that Jacob and Esau just pardoned. Jacob enjoyed the blessing, and there was no reconciliation. I mean, but, but but Paul is using this for a reason because he gets to the point he's making in Romans eleven. It's about reconciliation. That's why he's talking about Jacob and Esau. And, and, it, and it amazes me to this day that someone as brilliant as Augustine, of all people, could read those chapters and think that the stuff about the vessels of wrath is, is, is a claim about the will of God, you know, even though it's, it's entirely, you know, it's written in, in passing as even if God were this bad, could you, could you dare, would you dare to question him? And then he says, and then basically he says yes. Because he goes holding questions, you know. He said, "Well, let's question him anyway." And you get finally, you know, Romans eleven, in which it turns out that you're talking. The whole discourse has been about the providential reconciliation 
of, of Jews and Gentiles. It's not about the exclusion of the non-elect and the and the salvation of the elect at all. It's about the way in which in which uh, a temporary period of, of of seemingly unjust predilection is being used in order to bring about a universal reconciliation. And all of Israel will be saved, and all have been bound in disobedience, that all may be shown. I mean, it, it is exactly the opposite. Paul's whole argument is a, diametrically opposite the traditional Augustinian slash Calvinist to mystic to Jansenist reading. I have seen thy face this day as the face of God. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and remember, it's, it's, that's and Jacob to Esau. Yeah, it's Jacob to Esau, not Esau to Jacob. Yes, absolutely. In fact, Jacob was the one whose character was a lot more questionable. Oh, than I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, it's it's pretty clear that that uh, the, the uh, patriarchal narratives are not exactly giving us Jacob as a model of good behavior. And, uh, well, I, I actually was having a running argument with a Calvinist years ago until he finally just blocked me, which was a blessing to me. But uh, the uh, you know he he talked you know Jacob if I love Esau if I hated this proves Esau is forever burning in hell. <laughs> it's like. Uh, get you didn't get to chapter thirty two, did you? Yeah, I was, I was kind, of, kind, of, kind of missing the point. There uh, is is Paul is explaining why. Paul, well, I mean, in Romans, Paul is explaining why this is not evidence of God's injustice, not because of it, not on Calvinist grounds that His sovereignty is absolute, but because it's not a permanent state of affairs. It's a providential working in history to bring about. A blessing, a blessing upon all. I, I mean, it's it's it's, but it's there explicitly. That's the thing that amazes me. It's not like I'm forcing this reading on the text. No, it's right there in the text. I've seen this, this thy face this day is the face of God. I mean, that's well, but I mean, Jacob's it's right there in Romans. Uh, what I mean is, it's right there in Romans. The point I'm making It is right there in Romans. That's exactly the point he is making. But they divide it not just by verse, but by chapter. So yeah, it so, occurs to them well, that the, what his state that he's wound up an argument in chapter eleven, you know, you know, it's the same text. They don't realize that. Well, yes, they, they, they chapter and verse are both bad additions to the text. In fact, I think spaces between the words. We should still read it like the old Greek paleography <laughs> in which we just run yeah. the words together. Um, but this reminds me of a story that Addison, our eldest brother, once told. Is of course, you know. Uh, Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, they love singing hymns. You know, they're good at it. They sing them from beginning to end, or used to. I, I don't right. know. They sing all the verses and are continuing. Well, Roman, Ro Roman Catholics, not so, not so good at that. And, um, and there was, so he went, he was at a mass where they were singing, it was commendable, Lutherans, a mighty fortress is our God, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember this. They stopped at verse one. <laughs> they stopped at verse one. So it ends with, uh, you know, talking about uh, the yeah. devil, you know, armed with cruel hate, his power and might are great. On earth is not as equal. And that's the end. <laughs> and then they, they left. So basically, the hymn ends on this sort of um, praise of the devil's greatness. Yeah, if you get to the that's end pretty of, much, of, of, it's pretty much the hymn, it's the opposite. That's for sure. <laughs> 
Well, I think I think we can take that as a as a given. But I mean, the thing is, that's what it's like to read chapter nine and stop there and think that that's you've got you. you yeah, yeah. So, a, um, well, I pointed out to this poor fellow that all that Malachi meant with that line is that God chose Jacob rather than Esau. Well, said, also, well, also, the problem with translation, isn't it, is is trying to teach people that that none of these guys actually spoke English. So you yeah. do actually have to revert to the Hebrew and the Greek if you want some sense of what's going on. And, you know, this, this was not a declaration of hatred in the strong sense, you know. Um, so, so it was an idiom, as a matter of way of speaking, saying, I've chosen Jacob, I have chosen, not chosen this, was, was this one, this one I have, or disdained or whatever. I mean, it sounds bad, but it's actually just, this one is the one whose who's face... I lifted up with my hand under the chin. This one is not. Yeah, and, well, and I also had to point out to him that the choice wasn't about who is saved and who isn't. The choice was about who would be the father of the nation through whom the Messiah would be born. It's about God's, it's part of salvation history. It's not a, a statement that God shows this guy to go to heaven and this guy to go to hell. I mean, it's about well, it's our salvation problem, history. Salvation is of the Jews, you know. So, but this, but this is a problem, of course. Is once you've reduced the whole thing to just that, the whole story is, you know, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, and that's all based on God's predilective predestination, anti previsa merit, and that actually just that becomes a screen through which everything, by which everything else is totally obscured. I see so, a hand. Used and I'm sorry we've kept you waiting so long. But oh, Scott, Scott oh, Oglesby, yeah, you're you're muted though. You need to unmute yourself. There, there we, we go. go. I, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. My question is this: um, I grew up like I don't know. I just sort of was never. We never talked about how I didn't think there was one. I was like 26, and I'm still trying to figure out what that's all about. I'm going to seminary now, and I'm sorry, I didn't I hear what you, you you didn't think about what. I never, we never really learned about. Hell. We were taught that there wasn't really hell. You go there, you burn, and then you're. I, it basically was very in line with what you're saying. That's the backstory. I don't remember, but the the question I'm asking is, what's it like to work with people and to listen to people who really believe in this thing, like especially like uh, the hell thing, with regards to like listening to people and trying to understand other points of view um and like religious i spend a lot of time slashing their tires as as, as, (laughs) watch out someone's going to quote you and they're going to think you mean it (laughs) well the truth is i don't actually is if you're talking like the circle of people i know say notre dame theology department uh, well, pretty much we, we're all in agreement on these things. It's actually not part of my life. And then I, I've never had any, many colleagues. When I, as I say, St. Louis University was different because, you know, of, of Michael. Uh, but even there, he would have been more or less um, in the minority, to be honest. I mean, there, there are, I'm sure, I mean, there are some very conservative Catholic figures associated with the university who, who, who uh, are, are all in favor of, of eternal perdition and all that. But to be honest, um, 
the actual scholars in the theology department are, are pretty sophisticated about knowing what, first of all, what the scriptural language is. I mean, it's very hard to convince them that something that's not there is there, but also uh, just, you know, they're, they're trained in hermeneutical and theological uh, studies at a very high level. And as, as a result, they tend pretty much to be, uh, be honest, to be all, all the ones I know more or less unanimously universalist. So I don't really have, uh, uh, I, I actually just don't have that many contacts to think otherwise. Uh, uh, but at SLU, as I say, it, it, it led to one of the most annoying lunches I ever ate. But that led to a very good book on your part, yeah. not not the other one. <laughs> not, not the tone. I was thinking also in terms of like pastoral care and stuff like that. When you're a I, minister, people believe in hell. I wouldn't be able to help you there. I don't know anything about pastoral care. So that would be my okay. department. Well, I mean, I, I, I've never, I mean, this notion that, I know this, uh, I can tell you this, the notion that that people have to be scared straight. I've known more people who've lost their faith over the doctrine that I've never met anyone who, uh, who who lost his or her faith or was alienated for stopped, stopped being a Christian because he or she was a universalist. I mean, it's quite the opposite I've met, but I've met plenty of people, like the parents I told you of the, of the child with Asperger's who were just, just uh, unable to sustain the, the uh, cognitive dissonance. On the whole, um, this notion that, and I'm afraid some of the church fathers were guilty of it. I mean, there was this, you know, the late antique world was a rough world. You know, life was hard. Uh, and it was felt by many that there were more or less like three levels of intellectual and spiritual attainment. There were the truly spiritual people. This isn't unique to the so-called Gnostics. This was a common, all Christians thought this. Paul speaks about the, the, the pneumatic, the really spiritual man, uh, Jude, or, you know. And then there were the psychical and the, and the somatic. So people were at different levels and and so they had to be taught different things for the very spiritually advanced you know so it's okay to know that everyone will be saved but in order to spare these others the pains of purgation and the life to come we really have to scare them straight so we just give them the unadorned unallegorized language of hell and just and know that in their childish way they'll believe it take it literally and so they won't you know uh, beat their wives or children or, or, or steal or whatever, right? Now, you understand the impulse. I mean, it was a patrician culture. I mean, the sense of class was just, was just absolutely saturated the culture. And so you get Gregory of Nazianzus, who I think is just as originist as they come, more so even than Gregory and Macrina. I mean, he says things that just are <laughs> Later, Maximus tries to explain some of them away completely unconvincingly. Um, but uh, uh, Gregory is, is gives this one of his sermons famously when he's talking about hell, and then he switches into a purer, more educated, more elevated Catharevisa kind of diction and says, but of course, then there are those who will 
understand this in a more spiritual manner, in a way more in keeping with the love and mercy of God. So you say, you know, the educated here know that when I'm talking about hell, what I mean is purgative fire and the little, but, uh, you know, for the, the cattle in the back pews, no, I, I'm not trying to be, so, but, you know, I mean, that's just, it's of the time. It's not that they were bigoted towards the lower classes. And, and, you know, it's just this, in, in, the, in the fourth century, that is how everyone thought. But I think we've outgrown that. I think the truth is just the opposite, especially in a culture of more general literacy and communication. People aren't simply as liable to accept the terrifying doctrine and behave accordingly. And if they do, I mean, it's really a sort of a, it's like having a traumatic relationship with an abusive father and trying to tell yourself this is a good relationship. You know, I love him. I really do. I do. Although I know that I'm saying, I'm also saying this because he'll take the strap to me if I don't. Um, that uh, it's time to get past that. You know, and, and to say, you know, this there is a far more glorious story here than we've been allowed to tell. And it's actually right there in Paul, right there in the Gospels. It's, it's there in the, in the greatest of the early church fathers. Uh, and it makes sense. <laughs> it makes moral sense. It makes logical sense. So, I mean, though I don't have any pastoral responsibilities, I would be horrible. I mean, a confessional, you know, someone confessing to me, my response would be, why are you telling me this? Shut up. You know, I just, I don't have, I don't have that gift. Uh, but I can say this much that, that I think you can speak. Hmm, right. like anyway, you don't have to scare them. Into, well, there was a momentary uh, interruption in recording, yeah. apparently. I apologize. Something happened on my end, but it's it's back on now. Okay, yeah, just an internet hiccup. Uh, as someone who does have pastoral responsibilities and has had for many years, I'll say the the people who need to be scared straight are usually not going to be anywhere in your church anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you might come across a few of them, but uh, you know, I find that the the real believers that I know are generally ready to hear the good news as good news. But until they are, from a pastoral standpoint, their life is not in good shape. They're not in good shape. And they generally would not be people who love God or their neighbor. You know, that would be my experience for what it's worth. Which is precious little. <laughs> no, it's sorry. Uh, we yeah. this is the way we relate to each other, all three of us. We express affection by insulting each other. I'm sure all siblings understand. <laughs> Certainly, all male siblings do. It's a of brothers. Yeah, I do have an example. Of women are a little bit more advanced. Anyway, sorry, go on. I have no, an example, like. When you preach infernalism, it doesn't always work, right? Like my parents are evangelicals who try to evangelize and they tell people about hell and stuff. And none of their Buddhist friends want to believe because they don't want, they don't want to go to heaven without their loved ones. And my well, parents, their only response is, well, you should evangelize to them too, you know? And it's just like, 
these Buddhists have a better moral sense than these evangelical Christians, you know? Well, um, here. yeah, I mean, what, uh, I mean, let's be honest, the East Asian Buddhist tradition is, is of course, largely Yogacharan Mahayana. So it has a, has a, a long tradition of, of the Bodhisattvas, you know, these limitless number of savior figures who vow that none of them will enter into bliss until all other sentient beings are liberated. It's very hard to move, <laughs> you know, when you have the figure of the Bodhisattva or something like Shantideva's uh, Bodhicharyavatra or something in the background of your mind, that's actually, that's Majamaka, not Yogacara, so, but, but it exists in Chinese and in uh, Japanese and in Thai and in a number of, uh, and that uh, um, it's very hard uh, not to notice a certain moral deficit. I, I, I mean, this telling you the famous letter of Francis Xavier, I mean, Francis Xavier, I'm not, I mean, he's supposedly a saint. I, he's also the man who brought the Inquisition to, to India. So I'm not, I'm not that great a fan. But um, he's telling the story of how he had to tell all of his Japanese converts that their ancestors and including and even the, you know, recently dead uh, were all hopelessly in hell and how the, the, these Japanese converts were weeping, uh, you know, shedding tears. Uh, and it's, it's an absolutely horrifying story. And, you know, you realize, uh, um, that, you know, you, you wonder why someone like Francis Xavier, it would never have crossed his mind that there's something amiss here. Oh, yeah, generous. I'm, I'm converting them with the good news, and it's creating absolute misery. And, it's not just, and there it's not just the sort of the, the admirable East Asian traditions of, of respect for your, your, your ancestors. It was their recently dead family members, too, their mothers and fathers in living memory, you know. It's it was, interesting. It's early on yeah. in, in ecclesiastical polity, the laws of ecclesiastical polity, uh, Richard Hooker, actually at one point is comforting the people of England with the knowledge that their ancestors are not necessarily damned. <laughs> so, um, But yeah, no, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Um, and I, I will point this out. I mean, there, Christianity established a presence everywhere in the world. It's the world's most widespread religion. But you know, it never really did succeed in taking deep root in in uh, lands that had been influenced by the Mahayana. It just didn't. And part of that was the contrast. Um, now, it's an interesting thing, like in modern Japanese religion, religious philosophy influenced by, say, the Kyoto school, but also just in popular religion, there is a real interest in the Christian motifs of the savior, of the savior figure, of the loving savior. But it's, a, it's, it's interestingly often intermingled with a Buddhist piety. And uh, all the most interesting sort of spiritually searching Japanese figures, I know literary figures, philosophical figures, live in this kind of fusion between the Christian and the Buddhist, as if there's something that Christianity doesn't understand about itself. There's something Buddhism doesn't understand about itself, and each one, in a sense, clarifies the other. Um, and uh, 
I, I mean, I think that's part of it is is again that that long and admirable Mahayana tradition of the understanding of of the sheer selflessness of the Bodhisattva to the point where remember, I mean, part of Mahayana discourse is the sort of condemnation of the Hinayana as pratyaka Buddhas, you know, Buddhas who just look after themselves, you know, or, or only only have enough only have enough merit to save themselves and aren't aren't dedicating it to the salvation of others. Yeah, that's really interesting. I only brought up my my personal example because it kind of illustrates your third meditation on what it, how connected we are as persons and and, well, uh, and also to to say that like you you just said it you, when you talk about universalism that doesn't really you know offend most people <laughs> but when you share the the infernalist view it's very offensive and very very scary well you know there's a famous story about luther i i've been i've been criticized for quoting it because um because it's not something he actually wrote down but it was written down by people who talked to him there were like four or five different persons present who, who left an account of this um someone said to him well won't you know, in the world to come, won't people suffer anguish at the at the knowledge of their beloved family members uh, burning in hell? He said, "Oh no, not at all, <laughs> not in the least." So that was his whole answer. And it was like, "Well, <laughs> well, we've gotten past that moral problem." Uh, you know, uh, as I say, it's so conspicuously problematic that we have to teach ourselves to unsee it. Well, we're we're coming down to the last five minutes of my time online. So, if there's any last question or mark I can field, I don't see any hands raised. Okay. Um, hey, Bob, are there people physically present with you? Or yeah, but it... not very many. <laughs> Not very many, but uh, again, I expect this will be seen on YouTube or heard in the podcast by a lot more people than are partaking oh, up, yeah. participating. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, that, that's what I expect will happen. Um, the uh, I want to uh, remind everyone that our next session will be Tuesday. What is Tuesday, the uh, 28th? And the final one would be on March the um, 2nd. So next Tuesday, the last day of February, February 28th, we'll pick up here again at 5 o'clock uh, at the same time, same same YouTube link, uh, YouTube, same Zoom link. Uh, so same that bat time, same bat channel. There you go. That's right. Yes, okay. Same bad time, same bad channel. That Not really for Nelson Riddle's greater composition, better composition. Best. No, no. <laughs> Nelson Riddle was much better as an arranger, especially of, of songs by. Well, anyway, we won't get into all that. Okay. <laughs> the greatest arranger of the great American songbook. But yeah, anyway. <laughs>